Good morning, church. My name is Diotti, and I'm going to be reading um, from Mark 1, 35 through 39. It says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And same scripture in Spanish. It says, Levantándose muy de mañana, siendo aún muy oscuro, salió y se fue a un lugar desierto, y allí oraba. Y le buscó Simón y los que en él estaban. Y hallándole, le dijeron, todos te buscan. Él les dijo, vamos a los lugares vecinos para que predique también allí, porque para esto he venido. Y predicaba en las sinagogas de ellos en toda Galilea y echaba fuera los demonios. Amen. Hey, good to see you all this morning. My name's Tanner House. I'm the uh, lead pastor here at Redeemer Church. If uh, you need a Bible, raise your hand. My son Levi's back there with a grip of them, and he'd be happy to hook you up with the Bible. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1. Levi, I think you're good, bro. Uh, thank you for serving the church, my brother. Hey, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, and if you're using a phone, a tablet, um, any kind of electronic device, I use the ESV. Uh, just as a brief aside before we jump in, my friend here, Jake Driscoll, is making a promo video for us. So just pretend like he does not exist, even though he's super handsome and hard to ignore. But we're glad he's here. Uh, but he's going to be hopping around this morning. Just, just ignore him. So we love you. Thank you for being here. You're ignored. All right. So we're going to be continuing our series in Mark this morning. Uh, two weeks ago, we saw Jesus calling the first disciples. And then with these disciples, Jesus shows up in Capernaum at a synagogue on the Sabbath, and he begins to teach. Historically, all synagogues are facing Jerusalem. So in every synagogue that Jesus is teaching, he is always facing the place where he'd be arrested, where he'd be tried, and ultimately where he'd be crucified. Even in his teachings early on in his ministry, Jesus has the cross and his redemptive work in view. So what we see uh, and what we saw last week, Jesus is teaching differently than the scribes and the Pharisees, the way that the teachers of the day normally taught. His teaching is impactful. People are amazed by Jesus' teaching. They go home and they question among themselves, what is this teaching? It's a new teaching with authority. And so Jesus is teaching at the synagogue, and then all of a sudden, this man appears in their midst, and this man is clearly possessed by a demon. The demons identify Jesus, but not only Jesus and his humanity. They're also ID, uh, identifying Jesus' deity or his godhood and his lordship. And what we saw is that even though the demons have a better theology than the people around, and certainly that of the disciples... Jesus rebuked them for speaking up. Jesus cast them out, and he would not permit them to speak. Jesus has a clear mission from God, and he is unwilling to compromise that mission no matter what. 
Then we see Jesus. He goes to Simon Peter's house, and Simon Peter's mother-in-law is laid up in bed with a fever, and Jesus heals her. And then crowds begin to gather, and he heals more and more sick people, and he casts out more and more demons, the text says. Jesus is demonstrating his power over nature because he is the creator of nature. Jesus is demonstrating his power over the demonic because he has kingly rule and reign in the spiritual realm. Jesus is demonstrating his power and authority as a teacher because all the scriptures are ultimately pointing to who he is. So Jesus does all these miracles. But keep in mind, Jesus is never doing miracles for the sake of doing miracles. His mission is to point people towards God the Father. So for the glory, the praise, the honor of the Father, Jesus teaches and Jesus heals in that order. Jesus wants to restore your life, but that means first and foremost, he wants to redeem your sinful condition and call you to himself. The greatest miracle of all is the resurrection of Jesus. The most amazing thing about miracles today is that through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, God can and will make spiritually dead people come to life. So that's what we saw last week. And that's what we're going to see this morning, but with some major differences. So a couple years back, there was a study that got released. Um, it was uh, taking a look at CEOs and these Fortune 500 companies. They were looking at the success of these companies based on their CEOs. The study looked at the company's profit margins against the amount of time that the CEOs spent playing golf. The, the more times the CEO golfed a week, the less money the company seemed to make. Uh, conversely, the more time the CEO spent at work, the more financially successful the company seemed to be. I mean, it makes sense, like, how much time the CEO spends doing recreational activities uh, has a direct impact on how much money his company makes. And it makes sense. You golf four times a week, your company may struggle. You spend all your time at work, your company might be more successful. But here's a, here's a few thoughts I had while I was reading that study. From a, from a purely spiritual standpoint, work is a good thing. God ordained work before the fall of Adam and Eve. God ordained work when he placed them in the garden. He said, hey, you guys be fruitful and multiply. Work this ground. So again, from a purely spiritual position, work is a God-honoring thing. We can work in a way that honors God, that exalts Christ. And so we need to take that view of work. We need to work hard to set an example for the watching world and how we conduct ourselves at work and in the church. The adverse is true as well. We can work in such a way that doesn't honor the Lord. Meaning if we're lazy at work and we're stealing time from our employers or we flat out refuse to work even though there's nothing preventing us from doing so, that isn't honoring God. And in the same way, there is such a way as overworking. We have a culture in this country, and certainly in our God-blessed West Texas area, that is so addicted to work and so addicted to what it means, uh, what the world would call success. 
another thought I had when I was reading that study is I was like, man, I am somehow becoming more and more drawn to these CEOs that are out there hitting the links every week. I have no idea what their home lives are like. I have no idea how their marriages are or, or how their families are. But I'm also like, man, it seems like these dudes know how to rest. They don't appear to me to be driven by, like, making a bunch more money or building business empire or, like, working for the applause of men. There's definitely a temptation that I notice, and I notice this a lot in ministry, too, uh, about building ministries that, in a lot of ways, at the heart level, are not primarily focused on Jesus. We build churches— or plant them in the fundum. And I don't think this is always an intentional part of the church. Uh, but sometimes we build churches and uh, plant churches on the personality of the leaders. Sometimes dudes plant churches because they don't like accountability or have a hard time with spiritual authority. We don't always view our service to the Lord through a gospel lens. And it's oftentimes more me-focused than Christ-focused. I notice this in my own life, especially when a Sunday morning fails to meet my expectations and Monday I wake up feeling sad and down about it and would rather go drive a bread truck than preach another sermon. It is easy. It is scary how easy it is to make ministry an idol. I'm supposed to be loving and leading in a way that Jesus did, and yet... Oftentimes, I'm trying to do this stuff in my own power and in my own strength, and I'm not loving people the way that Jesus does. This is completely contradictory to what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus. And this morning, our text, we're going to see Jesus completely reshape and reframe what success in life and ministry or work, for that matter, looks like for us. But before we dive in, let's pray and ask the Lord um, for help. Uh, there's going to be a lot here this morning. Um, and so we really need the Holy Spirit to do a work in us to root out some unbelief and some pride. And so let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are thankful people. Lord, thank you that you have gathered us together in worship this morning. Lord, may we worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, may you be diligent in rooting out unbelief in our hearts, Lord. May you call us to repentance in areas where we're tempted to walk through life without you and without your presence, Holy Spirit. Lord, we need you this morning. Lord, we love you. Lord, we trust you. And we are inviting you to do a work in us, even if it's hard. Lord, I ask that you would be kind and bring people to faith and repentance and belief in the resurrected Savior this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, Mark 1, beginning in verse 35, it says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. So remember the context. The day before, Jesus had a full and strenuous day of ministry. 
It started super early because they had to walk to Capernaum, and it ended super late because, remember, the crowds were gathered around him. And Jesus, being fully God and fully man, felt in his humanity a need to pray. The text says he went to a desolate place. Some translations say a solitary place. In the Greek, this is the same word that's used to describe the wilderness in the temptation of Jesus. So what that means for us is what we're seeing here is another instance of this cosmic battle that's taking place between God and Satan. And with the arrival of Jesus on the scene, Satan is losing. We saw this take place last week when Jesus cast out the demons possessing a man in the synagogue. And we're seeing it again here too. Satan is beginning to lose ground in this fight. Jesus and Satan are in this war. Because, as it's been said, every time we pray, we are engaging in a war against the cosmic enemy. This enemy, Satan, seeks to do Jesus and Christians harm emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally, or otherwise, and we are being trained and equipped for spiritual warfare. This training takes place within the local church and through the spiritual disciplines like prayer. So we see Jesus, the Son of God, Messiah, God in flesh, going off alone in solitude where he prayed. In the, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus praying two other times. Once after he walked on water, and then in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was arrested. The night he was arrested. All three times in the Gospel of Mark that we see Jesus praying are in times of crisis. But in the other Gospels, we see Jesus praying in non-crisis moments. Sometimes we, as Christians, we only pray when we feel like we have no other choice. The fact that prayer isn't our first option shows how far our hearts and minds can oftentimes be away from the Lord. Rather, if we are to follow Jesus as our example... We're to pray with urgency. We're to pray with urgency for the salvation of our lost friends. We're to pray for, uh, with thankfulness for the blessings of this life. We're to pray and ask God for the things we need. We're to pray and ask God to help us love him more. We're not just supposed to pray in the hard and difficult times, but also in the mundane times because Jesus is there with us through it all. Daniel Aiken says about this, these moments, the first prayer in Mark, our text today, is at the beginning when Jesus' ministry is being defined. The second comes in the middle of the gospel when people wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. The final prayer is near the conclusion in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking the Father to take this cup away. These are crucial moments. The setting in each instance is darkness, solitude, recalling the wilderness and the cosmic conflict between our Lord and Satan. Here, Jesus finds strength in the solitude of prayer and intimate fellowship with his Father. What a valuable lesson far too many of us ignore. The text isn't specifically clear as to what Jesus prayed. But we do know that in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, Jesus shows us how to pray. 
So Jesus most definitely praised God uh, through his prayer. Most likely, Jesus thanked him for his faithfulness and helping him in the previous day's ministry. And likely, he began asking for help for the task before him as Jesus is moving towards Galilee. Regardless, I do not think it's important what Jesus prayed or Mark would have mentioned it. What is important for us today is that Jesus prayed. Can I be real honest for a second? For me, prayer is one of the, if not the weakest, area of my spiritual walk. I try to pray. I try to pray a lot. Sometimes I just fail miserably at it. And on the whole, I think our entire generation is pretty weak here. When Facebook and Twitter were gaining popularity in society about seven to ten years ago, John Piper, one of my favorite authors and pastors, said, what Facebook and Twitter teach us is that prayerlessness in this generation is not because of a lack of time. Honestly, sometimes we don't pray because we don't think we need to pray. What prayerlessness communicates is that oftentimes we think we can do this all on our own and we only reach for Jesus when we feel like we don't have any other options. We like the fix-it Jesus mentality. And listen, what we see today in Jesus is something completely different. Jesus in praying shows us his complete and utter dependence on the Lord. And if Jesus is fully God and fully man, this Jesus, perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God, Son of God, this Jesus that comes to take away the sins of the world, this Jesus, if he needs to pray, then we certainly have all the more reason to submit our lives to the Lord in prayer. There is nothing from the previous day's work of ministry that appears beyond the power of Christ. And he goes and he prays. If anyone can do anything in his own power and in his own strength, it is certainly Jesus, right? And yet here he is, before the Father, early in the morning, Before the stress of the day begins, he is in a period of prolonged prayer, showing not only submission to the Father, but also complete dependency on the Father. And then the disciples show up. I love these guys. I'm a lot like them. They wake up from their sleep. They're looking around the house. They don't find Jesus, the man of the hour, so they send out the search party. And we see Simon Peter in his classic Simon Peter way. And he's offering Jesus what seems like a a rebuke. Jesus, what are you doing here? Everyone is looking for you. The crowds are back. The people are in need of more healing. Jesus, you are building a following. Let's capitalize on this following. Do some more of that cool stuff, Jesus. Cast out more demons, Jesus. Let's go, Jesus. Verse 37, it's the first time, and it certainly will not be the last time where we see the disciples failing to understand the mission of Jesus. And if we're not careful, we too are a lot like Peter and a lot like the other disciples. 
Oftentimes, we like Jesus, the miracle worker, but we do not always want Jesus, the redeemer. We want Jesus to fix our problems without allowing Jesus to fix our primary problem of the sin that separates us from God. We want the Jesus of our own liking, but not the Jesus of the Bible. Peter is saying, Jesus, let's go, man. You don't have time to be out here in this desolate place praying. People need stuff from you, Jesus. And what we see in Jesus' ministry is, yes, there will be healing. And yes, there will be deliverance. But before any of that, Jesus prays. The kingdom of God is not limited to signs and wonders. The kingdom of God is word and power. So keep in mind a few things. It is important that when attacking sin, that we don't focus primarily on the fruit of the sin, but the root that is causing it. Jesus isn't interested in only focusing on the fruit of our problems, but the root of our problems. It is definitely a sobering reminder that our sin separates us from God. But here's the good news. The Apostle Paul says where sin increased, grace has increased all the more. In our repetitive mess-ups and familiar struggles that you're thinking about right now, I can't believe I'm doing that again. I can't believe I'm struggling with this again. Christ does not recoil or withdraw himself from you In fact, he is all the more inclined to help you because that's who he is. In our struggles, in our sin struggles, the grace and love of Christ is manifested all the more. Man, some of you need to hear this. He will never cast you out. Man, with that in mind, I love Jesus' response to Peter. There's no chastisement for his unbelief. There's not even really an acknowledgement of Peter's lack of understanding in this moment. Verse 38, Jesus, it says, And he, being Jesus, said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus is reaffirming, reasserting himself directly in the forefront of the mission that he has been sent on. He says, I came out to preach. God had one son, and he made him a preacher. What we see in the crowds and what we see in our world today is that they want a Jesus that fits into their liking, that fits into their agenda We want a Jesus that we can control and manipulate and bend to fit our lives. We want Jesus to leave us alone until we need something from him. The crowds show up wanting more and more and more, but the message from Jesus to repent and believe is not even on their radar. In saying that this is why I came out, Jesus is saying that his primary focus isn't healing people's physical, mental, and emotional needs first and foremost. 
Jesus wants to fix our spiritual needs first. And when Jesus claims lordship over our spiritual lives, the other stuff begins to get corrected as we lean more and more into dependency on the Holy Spirit. And listen, this is not an overnight fix. Most often, this is not an overnight fix. The stuff you struggle with doesn't just magically disappear when you start following Christ. And just so we're clear, there's no guilt, there's no shame, there's no condemnation for you struggling. Whether you're struggling physically, emotionally, mentally, or otherwise, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Jesus does indeed want to help you in all things. But don't just have expectations on him to help you if you have no interest in growing in him. That's not the heart of the Lord in this. Part of the process of following Jesus is becoming more like Jesus. And the more and more we become like Jesus, the more and more we realize just how broken and sinful and needy we are. That is called sanctification. We become more and more like Christ. Our culture really values instant gratification. We have like Amazon Prime and fast food restaurants to think for that. There, the, the issue is that a lot of Christians have with the sanctification process is that we want what we want when we want it. Let me see if I can give you an example. Andrew's not in here. He's serving in kids, so he was part of this example, but I'm going to just go for it. Uh, I love barbecue. And not just any barbecue, like good Texas barbecue. But in order for it to be good barbecue, it takes a lot of time. If you've ever had like a good, well-smoked brisket, oh, you know what I mean, melt in your mouth. Mm. Yeah, you know what I mean. You could settle for Dickies, or you could have a great slow-cooked brisket that has been given the attention and the care, and it is so much better. The sanctification process is a slow cooker. It is not a microwave. Jesus came to give us, first and foremost, what we needed the most. He came to give us himself. Before we need our problems fixed, we need the Savior's redemptive work on the cross. Jesus' teaching ministry is bracketed by miracles, meaning that Jesus can and is pleased to help us and heal us, but not before his primary focus. That is the preaching and the teaching of the word. That is preaching the good news of the gospel. So Jesus says, let's go. Let's go on to the next towns. So he invites the disciples along this journey to the region of Galilee. Jesus, in his sovereignty, is training the disciples for ministry. Through discipleship, Jesus is training these men for apostleship and holiness so that in a few short years, they're going to be the catalyst to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus is training them for godliness, which is the goal, that we can be equipped for godliness. So they go to Galilee, and by the means of preaching of the word, Jesus is fulfilling the very purpose for which he came out.
Jesus' life and ministry, and ultimately his work on the cross and through his resurrection are showing the Savior's purpose for leaving heaven and coming to earth. Man, for us, this, this small passage of Scripture has some implications that we need to res, uh, wrestle with. I'll start with this one. Our desire at Redeemer Church is to be a church centered on the person and work of Jesus and the authority of the Word of God. Every sermon you hear at our service, Lord willing, is going to focus on the necessity of repentance and belief in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Because that is the focus of the entire Bible. That God became a man to save sinners, defeating sin and death on behalf of believers. Jesus didn't just die for us, he died instead of us. Absorbing God's wrath that was reserved for my sin and for your sin. So I know several of you are looking for church homes. I understand that some of you may choose or be led to look for other places, and that is great. But what I want to caution you all with is this. If the church you choose to attend is not anchored in the Bible then run away as fast as you can. The role of the pastor on Sunday morning is to preach the word, not to tell you what you want to hear. If a pastor gets up in a pulpit on Sunday morning and never opens the word of God before you and teach from the word of God, I believe that the scripture says that that man is not worthy of that office. John Stott says that Christianity is at the very essence a religion of the Word of God. Do not compromise on this for anything else. And that is a plea for me to you, not as a pastor of a new church trying to get established, but as your brother in Christ. And if you are a covenant member of Redeemer Church, and if I am ever an heir of mishandling the Word of God, please... By all means, I want there to be some accountability between us. That is part of our covenant as a church. But before you confront me, please make sure your thoughts are anchored in the Word of God as well. What we see in the life and ministry of Jesus is without the Word of God, there is no building of the kingdom of God. Jesus calls us to faith and repentance through the ministry of the Word. The Word is a gift given to the church. It is the primary way that God reveals His Son to us and His will for our lives. We get to know God through the Word. And we get to know God through prayer. When we pray... We are praying to have fellowship by the blood of the Son through the Holy Spirit with the Father. Prayer is an act of worship. And we are worshiping God in all his beauty and splendor. We are worshiping him for his nature and for his character. That because of Christ's death, we now have access to the Father and we get to pray. Because of the gift of the promised Holy Spirit, we have an advocate for us 
to the Father. When we don't know what to pray or how to pray, God knows, and God sees us, and the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Why would we rob ourselves of our own sonship by not praying to God? What Jesus is teaching us through this act of prayer is that prayer is a discipline. He has to get up early, even though he may not necessarily even want to. Because remember, he'd had a long day the night before, the day before. But he knows how necessary it is for him to be with his Father. May we, following the example of Jesus, yearn for that fellowship with God who loves us and wants us the way that Jesus does. Church, man, God wants you. Maybe you're in here and you're like, there is no way. You have no idea what I have done. You have no idea what my thoughts are like. And I would say this. You're right. I don't. But also, I can relate to you. I don't want you knowing all the things I've said or done or thought. But God already knows those things. And guess what? He wants you in spite of you. God already took your sins upon himself. He can handle it. Before God, you are already naked and exposed anyways. The sin and the shame you're sitting in is no longer yours to carry if you are in Christ. But you have to acknowledge you need him. You can be free in Christ. God doesn't want us meditating on our brokenness. God wants us to see our spiritual bankruptcy and then come running to the Son because He is our portion. He is our prize. Because of the resurrection, that guilt you rock, walk around with like a medal doesn't belong to you anymore. Because of the resurrection, Hebrews says that Jesus lives to intercede for you forever. Let yourself off the hook, Christian. He knows our failures because of his greatness. He also can deal with our failures because of his goodness. Man, because of the resurrection and ascension of Christ, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. It is not God's intention, nor does it bring him any pleasure to see us recoil from him. God lives inside of us already. If you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit is inside of you. So God being inside of us, we can't truly leave him anyways. But it brings Christ joy when we come to him. Dane Ortland, who I quoted last week, says, Our sole aim is to follow the Bible's own testimony as we tunnel into who Jesus uh, most surprisingly is. And if the actions of Jesus are reflective of who he most deeply is, we cannot avoid the conclusion that it is the very fallenness which he came to undo that makes us most irresistibly attractive to him. He loves us for no other reason than he just loves us. 
So this sermon may sound like your very prototypical Southern Baptist Sunday School answers of read your Bible and pray. But man, those two spiritual disciplines, you you have the tools you need to grow in Christ. Everything you need. Read the Bible and pray and Christ will provide the rest. And so how is your prayer life? What is the first thing you run to in the morning? When you wake up, do you go to the Lord in prayer? Or do you hop on your social media? What would change in your life if you prayed like everything depended on the Lord? What if you woke up and prayed, Lord, I am a person in desperate need of help. Without you, I can accomplish nothing. What would our lives look like and what would our church look like if we prayed with that kind of desperation? Again, some of us don't pray because we don't think we need to. Some of us don't pray because at some heart level we don't think we need God. At some level, a lack of prayer communicates a lack of belief. Some of us don't pray because we think we're bothering God. But that too is unbelief. I need to tread very lightly here. Uh, this, this next little area. We're a society that's filled with like dad issues. Meaning, we oftentimes project our relationship with our parents onto the Lord. That is not the heart of a perfect and loving God who is our Father. Man, if you had a horrible home life, I'm sorry, but I promise it doesn't have to be your story. It doesn't how it ends. It's not how it has to end. Imagine the most perfect dad you could possibly fathom. Never short. Never angry, never mean, never an unkind word, never passive. Through the blood of Jesus, we have that dad. We have a father who is approachable, a dad who is longing to have relationships with his sons and his daughters. You are not an annoyance to God. Man, if you're struggling with loneliness, if you're struggling with like fears of being left or abandoned, anything like that, I can offer you prayer. God promises to never leave us or forsake us. He is there. So we pray, 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 pray. There, there's another John Piper quote. He might get a quote in every sermon uh, for Sorry, not sorry. Um, I love this quote when I was prepping for this text. Mark shared it with me. It says, The reason the Father gives the disciples the gift of prayer is because Jesus has given them a mission. In fact, the grammar of John 15, 16 implies that the reason Jesus gives them their mission is so that they will be able to enjoy the power of prayer. 
I send you to bear fruit so that whatever you ask the Father, he may give you. So I do not tire of saying to our church, the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of a believer is that they try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you believe that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It is as though the field commander, Jesus, called in the troops and gave them a crucial mission, go and bear fruit, handed each of them a personal transmitter, coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters, and said, Comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitter. To give tactical advice and to send an air cover when you or your comrades need it. Without prayer, we will always be lacking. It is the way in which we cling to Jesus when life gets hard. When life presses in on us, what we have been filling our lives up with is ultimately going to spew out of us. Man, so wouldn't you rather that be Christ in his glory? That does not happen without prayer and the word of God. If you don't know how to pray, Jesus shows us that too in Matthew 6. Maybe you read that this week and then pray that prayer and ask the Lord to help you in your weakness. Prayer is a gift. Receive it. Use it. Depend on it. Be strengthened in it. Church, let's go. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us. Lord, forgive us when we try to do this on our own. Lord, forgive us when we have made ourselves little gods of our lives. Lord, teach us to trust you. Lord, teach us to trust you when we don't trust anyone else. Lord, we are so in need of your grace and your goodness and your nearness because life is so hard. Lord, show us how to rest in your promises that you are with us, that you will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, teach us how to pray in the mundane. Lord, when our lives aren't that bad, and maybe we're moving towards a lot of heart and we don't even know it, Lord, help us to cultivate disciplines of prayer and Bible reading every single day so that when, the, when our lives squeeze in around us, Lord, we have a firm anchor of our souls in you. Lord, we are so desperate in need of help and incapable of self-saving. Lord, we need you. Meet us in our weakness. Lord, be with us the rest of our service. Lord, I pray you would continue to get glory and honor out of what's done and said here today. In your name we pray, amen.